But once I started talking to the experts, to doctors, researchers, policy people, people in recovery, people at health insurance, people at health plans, I developed a narrative about how we got into this mess called the opioid crisis, how we could get out of it, and concluded that the breakthroughs were really not medical or scientific in nature. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winoto. How is it that opiate overdose is the number one cause of death for Americans under 50, but over 80% of people struggling with opiate addiction cannot get access to care? Zach Gray calls this the treatment gap. To him, the problem is not a lack of quality treatment, but a lack of access to treatment. At Ophelia, Zach places evidence-based care in the hands of those who need it the most. By lowering costs and bringing drug rehab to patients' home, Zach is closing the treatment gap through telemedicine. In this episode, Zach discusses his personal journey to addiction treatment and a transformative solution to the country's ongoing opioid crisis. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Zach. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Christine. Great to be here. It's um, such a pleasure to have you. And I always like to start with your personal journey in terms of what took you, how to, what took you to get where you are? Because I think that's always so telling about why you're passionate about the project that you're working on. I think that's a good place to start. Um, I'll start my story about 15 years ago. I was 18 years old, starting undergrad uh, at Columbia. My father had just passed away from cancer. I'm sorry. And thank you. And I, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was observing all of my smart friends making their own life choices. And I saw many of them going into business, into finance. And it wasn't clear to me that that was a good way to spend your life. And so I became somewhat anti-business, anti-capitalism. I spent my time as an undergrad studying philosophy and astrophysics and working in physics labs. And over time, I saw how hard it was for my labs to make progress because they were largely dependent upon pro bono donation and how much meaningful work was being done out in the private sector. And I had a a change of heart. And that change of heart was simply, if you can figure out how to do good with people's money and also offer them a return of some kind, a return on investment, well, then you have access to a lot more money and you can do a lot more good. And the key was making sure those two incentives were aligned. So I got excited excited about startups and I joined a solar energy startup based in New York. I was an early employee and helped it grow quite a bit over a few years and then decided that if I were to start something of my own one day, I would be remiss for not having learned the fundamentals of business, all the things I ignored up until that point. And so I decided to go to business school. And I enrolled at Wharton, was there from 2017 to 2019. And as I was getting ready to graduate, I uh, lost uh, somebody I loved very much to an opioid overdose. This was a girl that I had met when I was a kid, 14 years old. 
uh, dated on and off for many years, watched her struggle with addiction and sadly, seemingly out of nowhere, overdose and die. And, you know, right away I asked myself, uh, is this a problem that I can solve given that I had no background in healthcare up until this point? And I was fairly sure the answer was no. Mm-hmm. But once I started talking to the experts, to doctors, researchers, policy people, people in recovery, people at health insurers, people at health plans, I developed a narrative about how we got into this mess called the opioid crisis, how we could get out of it, and concluded that the breakthroughs were really not medical or scientific in nature. In fact, we have treatments that work extremely well for opioid addiction. Uh, They look very much like the treatments you get for depression or anxiety. Chronic medication, support therapy, and yet 80% of people struggling with opioid addiction in this country are unable to get access to any kind of care. And a small fraction of the ones who do get care get access to evidence-based care. Now, opioid overdose, as a result, is the number one cause of death for Americans under 50. So how could all of this be true? Well, it turns out that uh, the reason this treatment is not being made accessible to those who want it and need it come down to uh, barriers that I I believe the startup could break down. So barriers related to uh, cost, reimbursement incentives, policy hurdles, uh, stigma. And I decided to team up with two physicians who I reached out to because I deemed them to be the utmost experts in this space. And we created Ophelia with a very simple mission, which is to redesign evidence-based treatment so that it could be made more accessible for anyone who needs it but can't get it today. And that was uh, 2019. It's 2023 now. Uh, We've (laughs) built the thing we set out to build. So far, so good. And our, our challenge ahead is Uh, scaling access by uh, partnering with health insurance companies, particularly within Medicaid, to get reimbursement that can cover our costs so that we can scale across the country. So maybe this is a good uh, segue for us to hear a little bit about what do you do to reduce the cost that you're saying and increase access so that more people can benefit? Well, first and foremost, we are a telehealth-based model. So We don't have any in-person locations, which means we don't have uh, fixed overhead costs. Uh, Our reach is not limited to a, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 mile radius around a particular clinic. And so we can serve an entire state with a distributed network of clinicians who are licensed in that state. So that's number one. Number two, um, we make it easier for patients to get started so that they're more likely to show up for their visit uh, and more likely to stick with care. And as a result, we don't have to pay the cost of downtime due to no-shows. I would say number three is by using technology and data to demonstrate strong outcomes that can be used in negotiations with managed care organizations. And so about half of the people struggling in this country are covered by Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid is run at the state level uh, and often doesn't have well-developed reimbursement structures in place to pay for this type of treatment. Well, what we've tried to do over the last couple of years is 
take whatever contracts we could get out of the gate, over time demonstrate superior outcomes and superior access, and then use that data to negotiate for uh, bundled payments that don't depend on fee-for-service volume. Uh, because oftentimes fee-for-service incentives are what uh, create problems for the treatment industry to begin with. If you think about the brick-and-mortar programs, they have high costs, they have limited reach, and typically the way they keep their doors open is by offering all sorts of services that are not medically necessary, but allow them to bill. So regular in-person visits, mandatory group therapy, mandatory regular drug tests, these are the sorts of things that make up the revenue model for most brick and mortar treatment programs, but they're the things that drive most patients away. So mm-hmm. uh, we keep our, our costs down. We also don't make uh, sacrifices on behalf of the patient because we believe that in the long term, superior outcomes, superior satisfaction will be enough to uh, convince the health plans to pay us more than they're paying us now, but less than they'd otherwise be paying our, our peers for, uh, for inferior outcomes. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you've been around for a few years now. What are the traction that you have in terms of outcome that you're confident that is better than what's out there? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first problem that we set out to solve is the problem of the treatment gap, the fact that most people who need treatment can't get it. Uh, and the barriers in their way are manifold, but some of the important ones are Uh, geographic barriers. So historically, in order to prescribe the medications that we prescribe, clinicians needed a special waiver from the federal government. Only 5% of clinicians in this country had that waiver, and about 40% of counties in this country didn't have a single prescriber. So if you lived in one of those counties and you wanted to get help, you would have to drive very far uh, regularly to appear in person. If you have a job and family obligations, Often these programs are only open during working hours, and so it can be very difficult to consistently get to an in-person program that's far away from you. If you are privacy concerned and you don't want other people knowing that you're using drugs and are in recovery, well, then it's very tempting to not get treatment at all. And what has happened as a result is that uh, just like there's a black market for drugs, there's also a black market for for this medication, buprenorphine or suboxone, because this medication is used by people who want to stop using opioids in order to stem withdrawal and cravings. Mm. So step number one is make it easier to choose clinicians than to choose the black market, allow people to get help privately and in a way that is covered with their insurance and fits into, into their life. And there's clear evidence that we've been able to expand access to care because when we look at the map of patients we treat, they're in almost every single county. Uh, Most of these patients are previously undiagnosed. They've never been to treatment before. They don't interact with primary care, let alone any other specialty care provider. And so we are their only touch point to the healthcare system. And most of these patients are coming to us directly through uh, online channels without having to be referred to us by the healthcare system because These are the 80% who are not in the system today. They're invisible. And so there's lots of data supporting our ability to expand access to care. And then when you look at uh, clinical outcomes, well, there are many outcomes that are tracked when assessing the quality of addiction treatment programs. Uh, The ones that rise to the top are retention and care and engagement. And so 
Historically, industry average retention is about 30% at six months. Our retention is 80% at six months, and we retain 70% of people at one year. Within the first month of care, the average patient has a touch point with Ophelia every other day. And so we have very high engagement scores. And when you look at how retention and engagement translate to long-term health outcomes, we're still working on getting access to total cost of care data from our health partners, but we can tell right away that we're delivering higher quality, more supportive, less judgmental care than most traditional treatment programs, just by focusing on some of the high-level clinical outcome metrics. And then, of course, you can look at things like uh, cost of care and uh, Mm -hmm. patient and clinician satisfaction, which we track through things like NPS and our Google reviews. So most of the data is is in support of a very strong program. And right now, the people, client that you come to your program, do they pay it out of pocket or is this something that they're... No, I mean, well, our mission is to serve everybody, which is hard (laughs) in healthcare where the payer networks are so fragmented. But um, we will accept anyone into treatment who wants to get treatment with us. Uh, most people who come to treatment with Ophelia are in network with one of our insurance plans, and about 70% of those patients are covered by Medicaid. Uh, we have some patients who are covered by commercial insurance plans, and then some patients who are not in network with our insurance partners, not because we don't want to be in network with those partners, but because the partners won't give us contracts. Uh-huh. So there are plenty of patients who could go somewhere in network and get treated for free, Uh, They choose to pay Ophelia cash instead because that's how hard the other options are for them. And until their insurance plans will let us in their networks, the patients have no choice but to pay out of pocket. And that's one of the, you know, the main challenges that we face as an organization is getting buy-in from the people who are responsible for covering healthcare benefits for our patients. Mm -hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. I want to uh, change our topic a little bit. I think it's great that what you're doing, it seems like uh, things are moving in the right trajectory for Ophelia. And I want to go back to, I was just thinking about what your comment that when you started your journey, you think that you want to be philosophers, doing astrophysics, doing some things that more, it seems in the outside world, seems so uh, against capitalists, like what you're saying. And I always found that it's really interesting when you face a big life-changing moment, like losing your parents uh, through something cancer in your case. And how does that shape who you are a little bit? And how does that also help you navigate a lot of the ups and downs in running an organization, building a company? It's a good question. I think it has... Uh, shaped my worldview in such a way that um, I don't sweat the small stuff as much as others might. I mean, I have a a pretty good grasp on uh, what matters in life and what doesn't, and most things day to day don't matter. 
So mm-hmm. if I can keep myself focused on the survival of this company and the health and happiness of our employees and patients, um, as long as that is not at risk, then I'm in a pretty good state of mind, despite the fact that certainly things go wrong on a regular basis. I would say that what it has also inspired in, in me is a belief that the economy exists to serve the people in it. You, me, your neighbors, our families, the people in it are good people and they desire things like good health care for themselves. So it is not capitalism that is fundamentally flawed. It's uh, other things that get in the way of capitalism um, that can be managed by ethical companies with strong moral compasses. So I've been careful to surround ourselves with caring, compassionate, responsible investors that are okay with Ophelia making sacrifices, sacrifices that are in the best interest of our patients, in the best interest of our clinicians, and ultimately our long-term survival, even if they may be at short-term odds with um, fundamental business goals like growing as fast as you possibly can. And I think that's so important in keeping you uh, happy, aligned with what the, your mission that you want to do. But I think it also takes a lot of courage and bravery in finding the right partners. And sometimes it takes a while to get there. And people always say like, you know, make sure you get the smart money, make sure you get people who are mission aligned with you. That takes time. And while you are getting there, what do you do while you're not there yet. Because I think once you're there, you know, sometimes for people who just started, it was like, oh, it's easy for Zach to say because he has already found that partner. But for people who has not, what insight or what advice? You know, have a clear concept of what is most important to you in terms of moral, ethical, behavioral values. Uh, And don't compromise just because somebody wants to write you a check. So for me, I, I wanted someone on our board who I believed was honest. I believed was humble enough to defer to the experts when he didn't have the answers rather than pretending that he, he knew everything, that had the trust in me to go find the answers, and that genuinely cared about the well-being of the world, which is precisely why he is in healthcare to begin with. Um, I think, though, that if you are thoughtful about your search, you find these people naturally because they're the ones who tend to resonate most closely with you and with your mission. And I'd be lying if I said I had lots of term sheet offers from investors I turned down because I didn't believe in their ethics. But I would say that we probably never got to that point because we didn't connect on um, an emotional level or a a psychological level in the way that I naturally did with my now partners, who uh, I believe I connected with because we shared the right morals. Yeah, no, I like that. I think uh, I was was in a conference last week. We're talking about uh, surround yourself with the right people while you're building your fundamentals will lead you to the right money. And uh, I think... Oftentimes there's that, uh, but I like how you say is that you, 
you never build that relationship with that particular group of people who don't share the same moral ideals that you have to begin with. So now that you had experience working in the startups, now this is the company that you built from ground up. What challenges that you face that you did not know how hard it was? And as you go through it, I learned in life, everything seems difficult at the moment. The moment it passed, it's not as difficult because you have new ch- new challenge. But what are the things that you thought was so hard, but then you overcome it? Well, I think the thing that has surprised me and has translated into the challenges we face today are that what should be hard in healthcare is actually not that hard and what should be easy is really hard. So mm-hmm. in most markets, in most industries, if you create something that is fundamentally better and lower cost than anything else that exists, you should be able to sell it because you can drop your price and still be accessible or even raise, raise your price and still be preferred. Um, but that assumes that markets are rational and that people will pay for things that are better and lower cost and that you can bring down the cost of care and still be profitable. That's not entirely true in healthcare because uh, the individuals who are consuming your product, your patients, are not the people who are paying for it. It's the health insurers. And even if there is a an entirely rational case to be made uh, for the health insurers to pay for your product, you have to weave your way through forests of red tape and bureaucracy in order to get them to see that and sign on board. And because of how fragmented the healthcare system is, particularly within Medicaid, your path to uh, you know national expansion is extremely slow. So I believe that by all relevant metrics, Ophelia has the solution to the opioid epidemic. I think that we can get evidence-based treatment in the hands of anyone who wants it for uh, less money than what payers would be reimbursing other programs and with better outcomes. Uh, the challenge is not about creating something better and lower cost. The challenge is commercializing it in a way that can be self-sustaining so that we don't have to rely on uh, investors forever. And I think this is a major challenge for healthcare startups today in general, right? Over the last few years, particularly in 2020 and 2021, there was a a burst of venture capital investment into quote unquote digital health, uh, much of which came from investors who had never invested in healthcare before and didn't exactly know what they were getting themselves into. Well, now the market has turned down. A lot of those investors uh, who invested in healthcare for the first time learned that healthcare services metrics don't look like software as a service metrics. They've pulled themselves out of the market. But what has happened is that you've had a tremendous amount of innovation many products and services that should continue to exist because they are better and lower cost and will save lives and also save money for the healthcare system. But uh, a race to get coverage by the people who control the dollars in the ecosystem, namely private and, and public payers like Medicare and Medicaid, to demonstrate sustainable business models so that they can get organically to profitability and continue to exist. So really, the, the baton has been passed to the decision makers who control healthcare dollars, 
And if they've moved at the pace that they've moved at in the past, you're going to see a lot of companies go out of business with innovation squandered because the system is just not set up to move as quickly as the venture capital markets would like. And how would you navigate that? It's hard to control. It's hard to control, but you have to control it. You have to know uh, what metrics to optimize for and how fast you can go. So a couple of years ago, when we raised our Series B, uh, investors were patient. They believed in the long-term vision. They were willing to give you credit for uh, profitable unit economics in the future, but they wanted to see you grow. They wanted to see you uh, increase your patient numbers, your your revenue numbers, uh, with the expectation that over time, uh, scale and time itself to renegotiate contracts would lead to a big and profitable business. Well, what has happened since then is investors have lost patience. Uh, many of them will not give you credit for a future in which you can become profitable. And so the key is to demonstrate that now. You need to be focused on efficient unit economics at a small enough scale that you can control it. And then when you're, re- when you're ready to you know, re-enter hypergrowth, have some concrete proof points that will be replicated, not created from scratch when you decide to turn on uh, you know, your accelerator once more. So know how much money you have, know what you need to prove to get to the next round of funding, try to get to profitability if you can. But uh, don't go too big with the expectation that investors will care about big. You got to make sure that you can demonstrate the underlying fundamentals of profitability that any investor in this economy wants to see. Isn't it interesting how when the environment changed, it produced different kind of uh, leaders and different kind of companies to be successful. And the growth time is all about who can talk as big as you can, because yeah. that is the one that grow. But I think as bad as it is now, as a patient or taxpayer, it become more, it produce a more thoughtful company, don't you think? Um, I think that, I think that that is true. And I think that there will be a process of natural selection whereby the truly important companies will figure out a way to survive. But I also think that the consequences, they will scale much more slowly than is needed. I mean, we're talking about, uh, with, with respect to opioids, the number one cause of death for Americans under 50, over 100,000 people dying every single year, a treatment that has 20, 30 years of research behind it as demonstrably effective, and that also reduces costs for the healthcare system. So if there are no losers here. If you want to save lives and you want to spend less money on healthcare, you should be paying adequately for medication-assisted treatment, which is what Ophelia provides, and we should be able to continue to grow now rather than having to wait a few years to grow later because lots of people are going to die along the way. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that a growth orientation is necessarily the wrong strategy as long as it's applied to the companies that deserve to grow. The benefit of an efficiency-oriented strategy is that Uh, you force the companies to prove for themselves that they deserve to grow uh, at the expense of getting healthcare in the hands of more people who need it now. I think I'm just thinking back about your philosophy time. And I think if only everybody can move to that direction, 
I think people tend to be um, a hurting mentality. And nobody wants to stick out to yeah. put the bet on certain things. And I think also the healthcare system in this country, the incentive alignment is not always in the preventive side yeah. also. And fun. how do you navigate that when you're so passionate about that so important? Well, you have to know which narrative to tell when you're talking to payers. So if you think about a population of individuals that are covered by a given plan, some percentage of them have opioid use disorder. Of that population who do, 80% are invisible. And those people will be very expensive once they become diagnosed by virtue of winding up in the emergency room after an overdose. And so it makes sense for the health plan to want to engage those patients in preventative care, because if you can get somebody into treatment and stabilized, well, downstream, you save money. Now, that might represent the bulk of the opportunity for social impact and also the bulk of cost savings for the system, but it's a harder sell to the health plans. What's much easier is to focus on the 20% of patients they know about who are already costing them money because they're already appearing in the emergency room, uh, who are already getting treatment by alternative providers with worse outcomes at higher costs and focus instead on that. And so the easier argument for us to make today is um, look at what you're paying on average for a patient to get treatment for opioid addiction, then look at the outcomes of these programs. We'll generate better outcomes for you at lower cost as long as you agree to sign on and, and the savings will be immediate. So while in my heart, I care most about expanding access to care and treating everybody, the payer knows what's most visible to them. And if you can bring down their cost directly, it doesn't feel like preventative care. It feels like instant cost savings. Right. Yeah. I think that requires a change of uh mindset that is hard to convince when their bottom line, what they, when they're being measured on year to year rather than on the long-term health of the society. I think another challenge, frankly, is that um, when it comes to innovation, health plans tend to focus on a few conditions that represent the bulk of their costs. Right. And while opioid addiction is the deadliest condition for Americans under 50, many of the costs are invisible to them because they haven't incurred them yet, or when they do incur them, they're not coded as such. And so it's not uh, top of mind for mm -hmm. healthcare payers, uh, which means the argument is harder to make. It's more difficult to get their attention. And once you do, it's even more difficult to get them to move quickly when they have a whole bunch of other things on their plate, like solving primary care and diabetes that represent a larger chunk of expenditures, which they typically discuss more frequently in the boardroom. Right, right. I think with the opioid crisis that the country faces, I think it does bring this uh, particular challenges to surface. Hopefully, more and more people understand the value of uh, preventive uh, part of it, uh, addressing it before it's too late. It's always good. Um, so my last question before I let you go. Went through, you know, I don't want to, you know, you said that you lost your girlfriend from opiate overdose. You lost your father. There's a lot of deep losses in your life. And what do you learn from it? And do you, 
everybody will go through life with losses, but you know, some of us experience losses earlier in our life than others. What what have you what did you learn from all that experience? That other people who has not had it that you have the wisdom of? Well, I think if you've never lost somebody close to you, it will probably be difficult the first time. Uh, you'll be faced with all sorts of philosophical questions around your own existence, your own mortality, uh, things that we tend to think about when we're laying in bed at night, but you know, for most of our childhood are afraid to think about it all. When someone dies that's close to you, you you're forced to reckon with those questions. And with time, you get over it. And the next time it happens, you've already done most of the hard work once. You don't have to do it again. But you can focus on the other aspects of it that are now more um, exaggerated. So how much you miss the person and wish they were around. But ultimately, what I'd say I've learned most, aside from a series of philosophical lessons is that clearly these were the two, you know, the two biggest um, events in my life. Uh, they very much are, they're very much responsible for what I think about and feel on a daily basis. And if you can spend your life focused on preventing those events in other people's lives, that's about the biggest impact you can have on the world and on the happiness of others around you. So try to mitigate those experiences for others in the world. And as long as you're doing your best, you're, you're giving life uh, all it deserves. That's great. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing your insight with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.